Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the History Today podcast for July 17th, 2012. In this edition... Richard Rose discusses the history of energy transition. So in the August edition of History Today, we've got a fascinating article by Richard Rhodes of Stanford University, which is on the history of energy transition. And we have Richard with us now. Um, Richard, what do we mean by energy transition? The uh, change from one basic source of energy let's say, wood, to another basic source of energy, such as coal or coal to oil. And one of the things you make very clear about that is that we've gone through a century, a century and a half of fairly rapid energy transition. And yet it it took as long as 3,000 years to make the first great energy transition, which was that from uh, from wood to coal. Why did it take so long? You know, that's an interesting question. Why did it take so long? I think basically because the world was fundamentally agrarian. There was, uh, the most important reason is, there was plenty of wood around. And as long as this source was literally hanging on the trees, uh, there was no need to do such terrible things as digging into the ground for this dirty material called coal, uh, and so forth. Each, the, the long delay really had to do with the availability of material. And there was great resistance, wasn't there? Even, even when uh, coal's attractions were becoming more evident, um, you talk, for example, in the article about Elizabethan England and the, uh, and the, and the animosity towards um, the use of coal there. Well, I think that to me, was the most intriguing part of this research. Uh, Because today we're looking at a fairly similar situation with nuclear power, where there's a great deal of resistance on the part of many people to what is perceived to be a uniquely dirty and dangerous substance, which in fact is not, but that's another question. But if you look back to Elizabethan England, by which time the availability of wood was declining rapidly because as London and other cities cut down the trees, they had to go, uh, collectors of wood had to go farther and farther away to get the available forests, and that meant increased transportation costs, delivering the material to, to the city, and therefore it slowly, wood slowly, first of all, became more scarce, but also became more expensive to the point where the common people could no longer really afford it. And in fact, Coal was always sitting there in the ground, and, and at first, of course, fairly available in shallow mines that didn't 
interrupt the uh, underground water table, so easy to harvest. But the technology had not been developed to harvest it, uh, and people were unfamiliar with it. and They didn't like the smell. As it turns out, something that surprised me and fascinated me, uh, most houses in Elizabethan England in the cities did not have chimneys. The smoke of wood fires, which we all know smells rather nice, was allowed to drift through the rooms of the, of the houses of the apartments and simply drift out the windows. It was believed to be healthy to breathe and, and believed to strengthen the beams of the buildings. So there, and, and in addition, of course, wood fires were used to cook food and particularly to roast meat. And the idea that you were going to be roasting your meat over a coal fire with the, with the distinctively sulfurous flavors of coal was really quite disturbing to people. And so for a lot of cultural as well as technical and economic reasons, uh, it was the, there was a great deal of resistance to this. This substance, coal, was actually considered to be the devil's excrement <laughs> lying underground and having hardened over time. And it was preached against in the churches and sermons. So for all these reasons, it was quite a shock to have to move from, from this lovely, sweet-smelling substance called wood to this terrible-smelling substance called coal. Because what happened um, with coal was that um, the, po the possibility of what became uh, the Industrial Revolution um, uh, be became possible through the use of that, and one of the yeah. one of the concepts that you introduce into this is this idea of of pre-adaptation um, that seems to mark these transitions. I wonder if you could a a explain that in in terms of the development of the industrial revolution and that transition to coal. Well, the original function of coal, of course, was to heat homes and so forth. Uh, as it came into use, as people began to accept it, really out of necessity. Uh, it was mined, as I said, in mines that originally were shallow above the water table. But as the mines deepened, as more coal was extracted from the ground, uh, they went below the water table, and therefore there was a problem in the mines with, with uh, water filling them up, getting in the way. So then something had to be done to develop a way to pump the water out of the mines. And that was where the newly invented steam engine found its first application for pumping water out of mines. Uh, thus, the steam engine was available when someone had the good idea of putting it on wheels and letting it drive uh, a train the first use of the steam engine as a means of locomotion was to move coal cars down to the harbors to be loaded upon the coaler boats to, to carry the coal around uh, through England to London and the other cities of your country. So that meant that there was now potentially a, a locomotive system on wheels riding on rails and it didn't take much imagination to see that you could also use such a system to move goods and people. The next application, of course, was on ships, which had begun to be uh, 
put into place, I think, around the 1840s. So step by step, something that originally was, was a means of heating and homes and cooking food and doing industrial processes became a method of transportation. And, and that, in turn, led to the development of a very powerful source of energy, uh, the first source of energy that wasn't basically muscle of one kind or another or falling water. And, and that, in turn, prepared the world to use this in factories to, to weave cloth and all the other things that followed. And this element of pre-adaptation is central to, to the next great uh, energy transition, which is that of the use of oil. And similarly, oil was originally something that oozed out of the ground and nobody really knew what to do with it. Uh, it was it was first used, I mean, the, the oil that was used for lighting was basically whale oil for a long time. And then what we call kerosene came into use. But the possibility that oil could be used as a sort of fundamental source of energy was not immediately obvious either. The big transition came in shipping when... Uh, when uh, the United States Navy decided to switch over to diesel engines rather than rather than burning coal. That came in the fairly early years of the 20th century. Prior to that, the application of the, the use of oil for energy, even though oil is not as compact a source of energy as coal, followed from the fact that the oil that was being refined into better products like kerosene and gasoline, uh, the refineries themselves needed a source of energy. And the obvious source, because it was right there waiting to be used, was the oil that was being refined. Mm -hmm. uh, it was easier to move oil, even though it was not as compact a source of energy. It was easier to move it through pipelines than coal. So again, the problem of transporting the material, as in England with wood, the problem of transporting the material became central to, to uh, new ways of using it. It was easy to pump oil through pipelines. Thus, it could be delivered to various places much more cheaply than coal. Thus, it was, it was something that was used in place of coal. And then, of course, with the development of the internal combustion engine uh, and the application of, of oil in the form of kerosene and gasoline to, to automobiles, suddenly then there was a huge transition to the use of this material. Nuclear energy is in, is in decline, but that's not, that in fact is really a very local European phenomenon, fundamentally because of resistance to this source of energy for various reasons. If you look at what's happening in, in particularly in the East, uh, you will see that South Korea is planning to build something like 25 nuclear power reactors in the next 20 or 30 years, China even more so. So the transition to nuclear power, which is slower than the transition to gas, is ongoing. And I don't think there's any doubt that the two major sources of energy in the second half of the 21st century, the current century, will be natural gas and nuclear power. Now you conclude in the article um, by saying that what energy is really about is giving an adequate standard of living to an ever-increasing population which might even reach 10 billion in in relatively short time. Um, do you feel positive about that, about the potentials of, of energy and power? 
I do. I think that what we managed to do is find new sources of energy. I mean, if you trace the history of, of the use of various materials as sources of energy, it is one of declining pollution, not increasing pollution. Uh, coal was dirtier than, than oil, and oil is dirtier than natural gas. And nuclear power is uniquely clean, except for its occasional problems with breakdowns, and uh, that's another subject. But all sources of energy have problems with breakdowns that cause environmental problems from time to time. Nuclear's record is actually better than most. But each, each causes less total pollution to the environment. And when we're talking about increasing vastly the amount of energy, so that people, energy is a, is a measure, if you will, of the standard of living, of, of the standard of life. And it looks as if when everyone in the world has about 4,000 kilowatts of energy per year, uh, that would be a good, healthy standard of living for everyone. That's somewhat less than we have in, in our modern, advanced industrial societies, uh, but considerably more than, than what we used to call the third world has. So I think we're moving in that direction. I think we'll work around our problems. I don't know that we'll solve the global warming problem. I sometimes imagine that we will all be living underground in 100 years. But there are worse fates, if truth be told. So, so things do look rather optimistic from my point of view. Well, thank you, Richard. It's a fascinating subject and it's a fascinating article. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Richard Rhodes' piece in the August edition of History Today, which is out this week. Also in the August issue, as London 2012 opens, David Gribble tells the story of an Olympian clash between the Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta. Simon Andre Sterling scrutinises the troubled history of King Arthur and the Church. Elizabeth Boyle challenges the rise of nationalism in the field of Celtic studies. Robert Coles attempts to define Britishness and Tim Stanley debates the legacy of Chairman Mao and his role in modern China. You can also get History Today for your iPad, Android device or Kindle Fire via our new tablet edition. This month we have a tablet exclusive article by Mihir Bose on the origins of the modern Olympic Games and how they were influenced by a 19th century English novel. The tablet edition is out now. Search for History Today magazine in the App Store or Google Play or on the Kindle. Or you can visit www.historytoday.com forward slash app for more information. You can also listen to previous podcasts and comment on anything you've heard today by going to www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>